I'm Mindy Peterson, and this is Enhanced Life with Music, a look at music's effect on our everyday lives. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, speech disorders affect 11% of children ages 3 through 6, and over 9% of children ages 7 through 10. That's a lot of kids. One of my two kids qualified for speech therapy as a preschooler. The majority of the speech disorders in young children have no known cause and affect boys at significantly higher rates than girls. Thanks to listener Lynn Commerce, I recently became aware that music can be an incredibly helpful intervention in these situations. Joining me today from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, is Laura Moore, Vice President of Programs with the National Organization Apraxia Kids. Apraxia is one of the most common speech disorders in young children. Laura has experience working in public schools, private practice, and early childhood intervention programs, and with adults with developmental disorders. Laura worked at Texas Women's University for 26 years, teaching undergraduate and graduate courses, providing clinical supervision, and directing the speech-language pathology graduate program. Welcome to Enhanced Life with Music, Laura. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Laura, I had never heard of apraxia before I started digging into this topic. Can you explain to listeners what apraxia is and also tell us what some of the other common speech disorders are for young children? Sure. So apraxia of speech actually is not that common in children, young children. It's really only about one in a thousand kids have it. Mm. Um, so it's, it's more rare and not as well known as other speech sound disorders. Um, there's lots of speech sound disorders, like just an articulation disorder where a child has difficulty with just a few sounds. <clears throat> the most typical being R is hard, and so children will mm-hmm. sound like wabbit instead of rabbit. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also phonological disorders, which are pretty common, where kids have patterns of, of sound errors that they make. And um, it can cause their speech to be very unintelligible. So there's multiple things going on. So they'll leave out initial or final consonants. They'll um, reduce sounds so they, they sound different. So um, it really affects their overall intelligibility. And is that still part of that articulation disorder? Do you kind of lump yes. those two together in terms of having a hard time making the R sound or the S sound? Some of those. Well, they're they're kind of separate. Um, so they they're all lumped under a speech sound disorder. Okay. So articulation disorder is really just one or two sounds are not produced correctly that they should be producing for their age. Okay. So you know, a three year old who can't say R that's typical, but mm-hmm. a seven year old who can't take who can't say R is more dif- is more concerning. Okay. The phonological disorder, there's many sounds, many kinds of patterns that we see in these children. And so when they talk, you really have a difficult time understanding them. And that, are we still talking about the articulation disorder? There must be lots of different ways of categorizing these (laughs) because I I know I sort of found the five most common that I saw and they kind of lumped them into different categories. How, How would you categorize the most common speech disorders for young children? So phonological disorder would be one. An articulation disorder would be a second one. Okay. Um, And those are probably account for the majority of children. Oh, okay. 
um, childhood apraxia of speech is, is in there. And then another one that we see is dysarthria, where there's actual muscle difficulty. So their muscles are weak. Um, they have difficulty producing sounds. And that usually is accompanied by um, another type of um, something that's going on. So like cerebral palsy mm. or something like that. Okay. So you kind of put the, the disorders into those four categories? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. And something like stuttering, would that fall into one of those then? Yeah. So stuttering is um, sometimes considered a speech sound disorder as well. And so that's where children are not able to fluently say words and sentences to, um, when they're talking. And so they have breaks in their, their processes of, of talking. Okay. Okay. So explain what the difference is between these common speech language disorders and a speech delay. So a speech delay is generally the child is just developing slower than a typical child would in regards to their speech. So they're developing, but just at a little bit slower pace. And so these children, we can give them therapy and they typically make really good progress and and don't require long bouts of therapy in order to to meet their age peers, okay, which is a little bit different than the, um, a disorder, which mm-hmm. is where something's just not progressing correctly okay. versus it's just slower and progressing. Okay. So with the speech delay, they're, they're following kind of the typical developmental path. It's just not quite as far along as a typical kid that age. Right. Okay. Well, one thing that I saw that was really interesting is, and I think this was probably on the Apraxia Kids website, was why is it so hard? Like, why is it so hard to talk? And it kind of went into all of the different moving parts and brain connections and everything that's involved in talking. And it's one of those things where when you really break it down like that, it's like, wow, I it, it really is kind of amazing how our body... <laughs> talk to us about some of those different moving parts with brain right. and muscles and tongue and all of that. Sure, yeah. So speech is an actual um, motor process. So putting sounds together to form words is really a motor act. So it's very similar to like if you're going to pick up a ball and throw it. So when we throw the ball, we have to have a motor plan to tell our arm, you know, to to bring your arm back, move it forward, release the ball at the right time with the right force to make it go where we want it to go. And so there's lots of factors that that we have to take into account. You know, how big or heavy is the ball? How far away is the target? Is there interference? Is the wind blowing or is someone trying to block you from throwing that ball? Mm-hmm. Are you throwing it to knock something down or are you throwing it for a child to catch? Because those are two very different yeah. things. <laughs> so, <laughs> Or a snowball fight with your brother. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so we adjust accordingly, just almost kind of seemingly automatically to how we need to throw that ball. So the same thing happens with speech. Our brain has to develop a motor plan to say what we want it to say. And so to say the sounds, the sounds in the right order, the words in the right order to make a sentence. And there's, and there's factors, again, that our brain has to take into account, such as how loud do we need to be for someone to hear us? Mm-hmm. Um, how fast or slow should we say it? Is it a question or a statement? Because if it's a question, then our prosody, mm-hmm. our intonation changes. Mm-hmm. Um, if we add sarcasm, our intonation <laughs> changes. <laughs> 
if we're um, chewing food or have gum in our mouth, then we have to like work our tongue around that. And so, so there's, you know, changes that have to, to be considered in order to talk. And, you know, you and I do it pretty automatically, mm-hmm. but when a child has childhood apraxia of speech, then the ability of, of for them to form those motor plans and to send those motor plans to their mouth so their mouth does the right thing at the right time mm-hmm. are disrupted. Wow. We don't really know why or how, but it happens. Uh-huh. Um, apraxia is also known to happen when, with adults when there's been a brain injury or a stroke or something like that mm-hmm. that affects mm-hmm. the, the left side of the brain where speech is processed. Then um, they will also have apraxia that, that is very similar, okay. but it's, you know, it's because of a trauma. Um, and that's different than aphasia, right? Right. A face okay. is more of the language piece of it. Okay. Knowing the words and having the words to say versus being able to produce the, the speech to make those words. Okay. So proxy is definitely more that motor function. Correct. Okay. At what point did you realize that music could play an active role in helping kids' speech development? Well, there's been lots of research about music and helping with speech. So there's there's been actual studies done with adults who have apraxia and helping them to regain their speech. And there's some programs out there for that. And then with young children, music is just intrinsically drawing to them. They Mm. want, they, they like music. They want to have music in their lives. And so um, there's been some studies that really show how music helps developing brains and um, some just fascinating things about even, you know, newborns and how they're able to distinguish both speech sounds and musical sounds from all across the, all languages and all musical systems. And so they can hear minute differences between tonal languages or between English speech languages and can discriminate those up until they're about eight to 10 months old. And then once they hit that age, then they're really kind of tuning, fine-tuning their discriminative abilities to listen to their own language and their own musical system that they hear. Hmm. So there's been some real fascinating studies. Um, so that's something that you were pretty much aware of long, for, for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So, so I've kind of known this in the back of my head, but, you know, it, it's, it's hard to sometimes to put it into practice. And so, you know, when I worked with very young children, birth to three-year-olds and then preschool-aged children, we always just incorporated music and singing, you know, nursery rhymes and and little songs because kids like them, one. Mm -hmm. And the qualities of that, that those have are very are geared towards children. So there's lots of repetition. They have rhyme. They have lots of prosody. They're usually simple melodies with more simple words. And so, you know, kids can engage with them very early on. Okay. So those are probably some of the factors that a speech therapist would look for in a song to use for therapeutic purposes is the repetition is how much of that is, um, these kids are familiar with the song, and that's why we use it. Well, they they become like, say, familiar Twinkle, with Twinkle, it. Yeah. Little Star, right. or Mary right. Had a Little Lamb, something like that right. is right. Pretty common here, and mm-hmm. so. so it's on kids kids TV shows. It's on apps. It's on you know it's everywhere. Yeah. So kids hear it a lot, and you know even you know if they have apraxia or a, a speech sound disorder where they can't really participate in the singing of it because they don't have the words, the ability to say the words, 
they can hum along with it or, you know, na 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 and just, just do simple syllables okay. for it, you know, instead of singing the whole song. And as speech therapists, the way we engage it is that, you know, there might be two words in a song that a child is able to say and has that ability to say. And so we use those words. So, um, like, twinkle, twinkle, little star, if we start seeing that and the child is, you know, clapping along or, or, you know, attending to it, and then we get to a point where that word comes up, we stop. And they just want to, they want the song to continue so they can say the word. So, yeah. like, if their word is up, um, because that's a very simple word, it just has a vowel and a consonant that's easy to produce. And uh-huh. so, you know, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder where you are, or what you are. And then we stop, and it's up is the next word. And so we, we want the child to say up for us to continue singing that song and, or say it with us even so that they, you know, so that they can continue. So they're participatory within the yeah. singing of the song, even though they don't know all the words or don't have the words to say. Well, I imagine if they are able to say that, that word and keep the song going, it really affects those reward centers of the brain too because exactly. they're continuing the song. It's a social experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Neat. Well, tell us some more about some of the practical applications of music with with speech disorders with young kids. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of, of the young children's songs, they have lots of rhyming words in it. And rhyming is an essential skill for children for reading. Oh. And so, yeah, so it's very, very closely tied. And so we want to teach our young children to rhyme so that then they can Realize word families and cat, hat, mat. Oh, they all sound the same. They yeah. rhyme and well, they're spelled the same. You know that makes sense. Because I'm right. just thinking, obviously, Dr. Seuss, but I guess right. I hadn't really yep. thought that much about <laughs> the connection between exactly. rhyming and reading. Right, exactly. It's a huge connection, and so, um, so using those kinds of songs, we we talk about the words that sound the same or the words that rhyme because you know a young child doesn't know what rhyming means, but mm-hmm. we can talk about they sound the same. Mm-hmm. Um, they have the same sounds at the end or something. So we use um, songs for that purpose. Also just doing, um, getting the rhythm, because, you know, speech, just when we're talking, has a rhythm and it has a musical quality to it. Mm-hmm. And so if we're doing a song, then getting them to note the rhythm, because certain words might be stressed, which we do in speech or in language when we're just talking, to make emphasis. And so getting them to do that, which is actually something that's very difficult for kids with apraxia. They um, they have a hard time getting that whole flow and the rhythm of speech, and they can sound sort of robotic when they talk if they're not taught to use prosody early mm-hmm. on because they're, talk- they're trying so hard to get all the sounds in there that it makes them have a difficult time adding the prosody, talking at a different pitch or talking slower or faster or having that natural rhythm with appropriate stress on words. Uh-huh. So what what you're describing sounds to me, it kind of reminds me of like adaptogenic herbs. Like if you just add music to things, it just makes things work better. Or like salt, you add yeah. salt to yeah. something and it yeah. just brings out the flavors the flavor. that are already there. Right. Rather than maybe a real specific technique or strategy, mm-hmm. which we did hear more about when we talked about aphasia with Gabby Gifford's music therapist. Who right, right. Helped her relearn how to speak after her sh- shooting. And with that, I mean, it was very specific, and this is how the brain works, and this is why Mm -hmm. music 
allows people to bypass the injured area and strengthen the other area and regain that ability to speak. But yeah, what you're talking about sounds more like it just kind of makes all of these strategies work better. Would you agree right. with that? Yeah, and, and, it, and it is in the brain forming pathways that maybe aren't there. So like the motor pathway to get the speech out might be not there. And so using music can draw in from the right side of your brain, mm. the, the pitch and the prosody that, that we interpret on the right side of our brain and connects it to the language center on the left side. And then, mm-hmm. that you know, it just kind of helps that come along. Yeah, um, that movement. overall neuroplasticity. Right, it's right. It's really enhanced. Yeah, and movement and gestures kind of do the same thing. And so the nursery rhymes that have gestures to it, and so if we're doing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, Itsy Bitsy Spider, having them do the gestures with it, mm-hmm. they can participate in the song, and maybe they can say their one little word that they have up and participate that way, but it, it, you know, it helps keep the rhythm and everything moving as they are enjoying the song and it Uh seems like they're playing and singing but really we're working on those speech sounds (laughs) yeah yeah really combining music and motion can be really powerful and then that also feeds into the social aspect of things too which brings a whole another effective element Mm -hmm. how common is it to use music with speech therapy for young kids is it like pretty much anyone who does speech therapy with preschoolers is going to be using music or is it not that way I think a lot of of therapists who work with young children incorporate music into their therapy. If you've tried to to get a a young child, two, three, four years old, to do something they don't want to do, it's Uh very difficult. Uh (laughs) But music can be a good way to get them to engage and do things that they might think is hard or that they're not as comfortable doing. And so I think that it's used quite a bit. Uh Uh-huh. Well, tell us a little bit more about Apraxia Kids. It's the largest, most comprehensive website on childhood (laughs) apraxia and children's speech topics. Your mission is to help every child reach their highest communication potential, which I think is really cool. And your website says, we believe that every child deserves a voice. Tell us about how and when Apraxia Kids started. Yeah, so Apraxia Kids started in 2020, and it was really a grassroots. Uh, ep- 20, sorry, 20, sorry, 2000. Oh, okay. Thank you. Okay. I was going to say <laughs> 20 years ago. Older than that. <laughs> yeah, 20, 20 years ago in 2000. Got it. So um, it was started by um, a couple of moms who had children with apraxia, and, and there was no information about it, really. Um, that they could find, and they felt very alone. And so they actually kind of started a support group in Pittsburgh for parents who had children who were who were dealing with um, apraxia. Mm-hmm. And so it just grew from there and became a nonprofit. And, um, you know, from the basement of, of these moms that it started 20 years ago, now we have um, a staff of eight people and we are across North America because we also um, are pretty active in Canada. And then we have people from all around the world who reach out to us asking for help and information and assistance. I'm sure. Well, even just accessing all of the resources that are right there on your website. And I saw you provide resources to over 25,000 parents and professionals. So this is for parents, it's for teachers, it's for 
loved ones who you just want to have a better understanding of the little in their life, the littles in their life who may be <laughs> dealing with this. Who right. else? Are there any other categories of people that you work with quite a bit? Um, speech language pathologists. So we do sure. quite a bit of training for the SLPs because the therapy for apraxia for children is very different than it would be for someone who has an articulation or a phonological disorder. Mm. Um, it needs to it needs to have some key components in it that are, are different. And if you don't know that or haven't been trained in that, then the kids with apraxia are not, will not make as much progress. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be a very slow progress for them to, to learn to talk. So um, our, one of our you know, main goals is to help spread the word and train SLPs to um, do the therapy so that they know the appropriate treatment to use with these kids. Uh-huh. Well, I could imagine somebody finding your website and feeling, going from a feeling of being alone to like, oh my word, there's all these other people who are in this with me. I remember feeling that when I when I was pregnant for our first child, I had terrible extreme morning sickness, the whole mm. pregnancy 24-7. And after that pregnancy, my sister-in-law had a similar experience and she just kind of casually told me about her diagnosis of hyperemesis and this hyperemesis website. And I'm like, hyper what? Like I had never heard that. And when I saw this website with all of these resources, I'm like, there's a name for this. There's treatment for this. You know, I was like, first of all, I was really angry with my doctor for not telling me about it. But I also felt like, oh my goodness, there's, there's help and I'm not alone in this. Right. And so it was really wonderful information to have when I went into a second pregnancy. So yeah, on your website, people can use that to help find a therapist. There's mm-hmm. community way that they can com- connect with a network of parents and professionals. Tell us about some of the other resources available on the website. Yeah, so we also have support groups. And so we've got one big main support group that um, parents get on and ask questions. And we've got therapists who will respond or other parents will respond. You know, a parent will say, has your child ever done this you know, uh-huh. <laughs> kind of thing? And so there is that support. And so we've got the main support group. And then we also have more local specific ones. So there's, you know, a statewide one or like there's a North Texas one that's just for people in that area. And so it's the same kind of, of support system for Facebook pages. Mm-hmm. So we also have um, articles that are on our Um, website so if you're interested in finding out more about a certain aspect you know like how does a child get diagnosed and we have you know written material that you can just go on to our website and read Mm -hmm. Um, we also have webinars that um, people can access to get more in-depth information we use the webinars a lot for training for speech therapists so if, if I'm a speech therapist and I have a child on my caseload who I think might have apraxia, but I don't know what to do with them. Then mm-hmm. we've got resources for that therapist to get some more information about how to do therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a conference every year um, that's a na- national conference, and it brings together both parents and professionals who are interested in childhood apraxia speech. And it's one of the few conferences that I know of that has both of those groups together. And it's just amazing to be able to sit at a lunch table and have parents and SLPs together talking about, you know, their experiences and what they do and, and, and stuff. And so, and there's, you know, sessions that are kind of geared towards parents and sessions for professionals and some that are for both. Uh So there's a lot of interaction 
How much of the information on the website and all of those different resources is geared specifically to apraxia and how much of it is also applicable to other speech disorders? The majority of it is is really for apraxia. I will okay. say, though, that once I learned how to do treatment for a child with apraxia and I use those treatment techniques with any child with a speech sound disorder, their progress just was magnified. And mm. so you can use the same kinds of things for any child with a speech disorder and they're going to make wonderful progress with it. A mm. child with apraxia is going to make, make progress. It'll just be a little bit slower. Okay. Well, obviously, if if parents have or anyone is working with a child with apraxia or thinks they may have, your website is the no-brainer way to go. If (laughs) if parents think their child may have some other kind of a speech disorder, what recommendations or resources do you um, suggest for them? Yeah, so we have for speech pathology, we have a a national organization, American Um, Speech Language and Hearing Association, or ASHA. And so that website has a lot of good information for therapists, but also for parents who are looking for information. The website has lots of information, but really the the best guide, if you're concerned about your child's speech, is to find a speech therapist, either with an early childhood intervention program or a school district, um, because those services are, are are free and anyone can access them and your child can get evaluated mm-hmm. and to see if they have, a, you know, a speech delay. A lot of parents rely on their pediatrician and, you know, they're going for their three-year checkup and um, they're, you know, they're con- the parent's concerned because the child's not talking very much and, and the pediatrician oftentimes is hesitant to make referrals and, oh, they'll outgrow it, okay. <laughs> unfortunately, is what they hear a lot. Um, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And so, um, you know, moms and dads know their kids best. And if uh-huh. they're concerned, then, you know, get get a, a speech pathologist or speech therapist to look um, and do an assessment for their child. There's sure. also, you know, private ones that you can do. But um, Sure. Well, you mentioned the school district. I never would, it never would have occurred to me to check for my preschooler with the school mm-hmm. district. But when my child was not really, you know, I just could not understand him at all. And a friend actually mentioned that her son was having similar issues. And she said, oh, he, my son does speech therapy and it's free. It's through the school district. Here's mm-hmm. the number to call. And I, w- I was like, I never would have thought about that. Is there, is there, like, how do people know about that? Just they, a lot of times they don't, unfortunately, um, unless they know someone who knows, you know, who's experienced it. But in, in different school districts and, and really the states have different guidelines. So, okay. you know, it might be the child's eligible for early childhood services from birth to three years old or maybe from birth to five. And then okay. once they transition from you know, at five, then they go to school or at three, they go to school. So, you know, it varies from state to state. So Uh um, they can just pick up and call their local school that's down the street and say, hey, you know, my child is three or my child is two, you know, do you guys provide services? And if they don't, then um, a lot of times the school districts, if they start at three, but mm-hmm. a lot of times school districts will have child find programs where they'll do screenings for younger children oh. and then re- refer them to appropriate services like with early childhood intervention or something. Well, yeah, if you have any questions about your preschooler, if they need any kind of assistance or services, definitely check with your school district because exactly. yeah, that, that worked out wonderfully for us. And 
we did have somebody come at the time. I'm not sure what they do with COVID now, but at the time, somebody would actually come out to the house. I think two people mm-hmm. maybe came out to the house to evaluate him. And at right. the time, the initial visit, they said, no, nah, you know, he doesn't really qualify for services. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't remember if it was six months later. At some point further down the road, I called him back and was like, I still cannot understand. <laughs> Fortunately, my, my his big sister can translate for me. Oh, good. But, um, so they came out again, and at that point, he did qualify. So, right. like you said, parents know their kids best. Right. So, but yeah, that's a huge, wonderful resource. Is your school district that um, most people I certainly didn't think about. Any other yeah. resources that you want to throw out there that I should include in the show notes for, for people? Um, those are the main ones. You know, you can always Google and get all kinds of things, but I would rely on, you know, a trusted source like apraxykids.org or the ASHA resource because then you know what you're, you're reading is evidence-based, it's backed up and supported and mm-hmm. Great. Well, and you have a little bit of a music background in terms of hobbies, right? Oh, yes. Dulcimers, <laughs> piano. Tell us yep. about your your musical hobbies. So, gosh, I don't know, 25, more than 25 years ago, I was introduced to a mountain dulcimer and just fell in love with it. And so um, I learned how to play that. And then from there, I I found um, or was exposed to a hammer dulcimer and really like that. And so um, I played and, and I'm, I'm rusty now because life got in the way. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, as it does. But, yes, as it does. But now I'm, I'm getting back into it. And so I'm, I'm trying to play on a regular basis. And I have some friends that I play with virtually right now because we're not doing it together. But I don't think I've heard of a dulcimer since like kindergarten. I think in our elementary school, <laughs> the the teacher yeah. brought one in, and isn't that the instrument that they, at least back in the seventies, eighties, <laughs> maybe brought into the classrooms? Uh, maybe it's a it's a folk instrument. It's an older instrument. A lot of people really have not heard of that before. Um, so the the mountain dulcimer is a lap instrument. It's stringed. It uh-huh. has three or four strings on it, and you fret it like you would a guitar. Okay. But it's uh-huh. sitting in your lap, and you can strum or finger pick like you would a guitar. Okay. Um, and so it just has a really lovely sound, and um, so yeah, so that's the mountain dulcimer. The hammer dulcimer is is a bigger instrument. And you, and it's stringed, and it has multiple strings across it. And then you're you, you're hitting it with little wooden hammers, mm-hmm. the strings to 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 do the the melody or harmony or whatever. Oh, okay. And you also yeah. have learned how to play the piano. Well, I'm learning. I haven't learned yet. Okay. <laughs> We're not um, going always, process. <laughs> yes, it is. I always wanted to play, and so um, and I've piddled with it throughout the years, but it's kind of on my bucket list now. I really want to learn how to play and read sure. music and stuff because you don't necessarily have to read music to play the dulcimer. Oh, okay. So, um, so I, you know, I know a little bit, and so I'm learning a lot of music theory and how to read music and stuff. So it's okay. been a lot of fun. Well, let me know if you ever want any online lessons. I'd love to teach you. <laughs> oh, I'd love it. <laughs> uh, well, I ask all my guests to close out our conversation with a musical ending, a coda, by sharing a song or story about a moment that music enhanced your life. Do you have some, a song or story that you can close us out with today? Yeah, so um, I have a, when I was working at TWU, I ran a two-week um, camp program for children with apraxia. 
because they really require intensive services. Once, you know, once a week therapy is not really enough to make a lot of progress. And so during the summers, we would run a camp. And so the kids came to camp for three hours a day, every day for two weeks. And we started incorporating like our second year of doing it. Um, I did it for five years. Um, our second year of doing it, we incorporated music therapy students who would come and do lessons with our, our kids in our camp. And so they would come for about 20 or 30 minutes and sing songs and play instruments and, and things. And they really were wonderful because they would talk to us about, you know, what you know what goals do the kids have? What sounds are they working on? What's your theme for the day? And they would incorporate their songs into those things. Mm. Well, so... We typically, you know, we would have a, a hello song and then a goodbye song. And so um, at the last, yeah, it was our fifth year, all pre-COVID. <laughs> so we had um, the music therapy students, we were all meeting together and we were like, we need a goodbye song. And so one of the therapists said, oh, we should do the the hey, hey, goodbye song. And and because um, we talked about how the kids don't have a lot of speech, they need simple songs, slower songs, and, and uh-huh. um, not a lot of sounds. And so um, we were like, oh, that sounds really good. And so we did that song. And one of the children that year um, was a, a little bit older child. She was six, very severely involved, did not have very many words, loved to interact and communicate, but no one could understand her. Mm-hmm. And so... We started doing the the hello and the, and the goodbye song, and so she just latched onto that goodbye song, <laughs> and it you know the sounds that it had in it were sounds that she was learning about and doing, and so the na 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 that that uh-huh. we do, and then hey hey goodbye, <laughs> and so she could sing that song by the end, and she would just we just started getting her to lead it because she Aww. wanted to lead the song, and she would walk <laughs> out of the room to go see her dad who was bringing her to and from camp and singing that song at the top of her lungs walking down the hall and we were all following her crying (laughs) because she just yeah she just didn't have a lot of confidence in her ability to communicate even though she liked to do it Uh um this just you know helped her confidence she was so positive about it and it was just a really neat experience so well there's something about that song that's a little sassy too so it probably that's true you know she had this boosted confidence exactly exactly yeah (laughs) so yeah and dad told us yep she sings it all the way home thank you guys Thank you, Laura, for all you do to enhance lives with music and for sharing your expertise with us today. In our conversation, I mentioned aphasia and how music therapy was used to help Gabby Giffords relearn how to speak after her shooting. This past week was the 10-year anniversary of that horrific shooting, and the New York Times published an opinion piece by Giffords marking that anniversary. It's called 10 Years Ago, A Gunman Tried to Silence Me, with the subtitle, During a Week in Which Our Country Has Endured Shock, I've Thought a Lot About Resilience and Determination. Uh, 
I'll link to that article in the show notes and also link to my interview with Gifford's music therapist, Megan Morrow, back in episode four, where Megan talks about how music rewires the brain and creates new highways in the brain to detour around damaged areas. Speaking of politicians, wow, what a start to 2021 we have had. One person said it well when commenting on the events of January 6th, well played December 37, 2020. <laughs> well, today is January 12, 2021. Martin Luther King Jr. Day is this coming Monday, January 18. You can recognize and celebrate that day by listening to our previous MLK Day, episode 25, on the role of spirituals within African-American culture. All links are in the show notes at mpetersonmusic.com slash podcast slash episode 77. There is also a link to that page in the episode details right in your podcast app. If you haven't already done so, be sure to hit the subscribe, follow, or plus button on whatever podcast app you use. This conveniently delivers each new episode to your device each week when it releases on Tuesday mornings. Thank you so much for joining me today. Until next week, may your life be enhanced with music.